This is a re-recording of a sermon on Palm Sunday evening when the sermon was originally preached. Revelation chapter 7. The book of Revelation has gained something of a reputation of being scary stuff about antichrists and the end of the world. Here be dragons seems to be the main idea, and even Christians can be reluctant to read and study it. And what's often misunderstood is that whilst there are indeed dire warnings for unbelieving people about history's final chapter, for the believer this is a letter of assurance and encouragement. And Christians need this twin boost, don't they? Whilst life offers many wonderful experiences, it can be full of hurt and struggle. Back in chapter 6, verse 10, the suffering believers shout out to God, How long must we endure this? And I imagine those very words feature in the prayers of members of this church too, as much as they do from any church. Such is the toll that life can take on us at times. Now, like me, you too may be old enough to remember a time when Christians were respected and trusted as backbone of society, their moral integrity applauded. But that's no longer true, is it? Being committed to God's values these days means we're allegedly bigoted and out of touch. We're being marginalised, even victimised. Our fellow Britons think the more they attack us, the sooner the Bible's voice can be silenced and the world resume on its merry way, unaware that they're doing exactly the wrong thing for a merry time. Well, increasingly, we long for the vindication and perfection of heaven. How long until you act in judgment, Lord? How much longer can we really hold on? Come soon. Now, if the book of Revelation as, an, as a whole has an overall theme, it's this, how to be a victorious Christian, one who can hold on until Jesus does come. It's about holding on to faith right to the end, overcoming this hostile culture of ours with all its temptations, which are trying to wreck our faith and to get us to disown the truth in our beloved Saviour, Jesus Christ. For his part, God promises to hold on to us despite this constant hounding that we receive. But the question is, do we return the favour? Just prior to Revelation's opening verses, Jude in his letter and, and, and verse 21, almost as though setting the scene for us, talks of our responsibility to guard our faith and ensure that we die still believing and holding on to Jesus he writes this, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And chapter 7 of Revelation is all about those believers who do exactly that, those who are told in chapter 6 verse 11 to hold on and, quote, to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete. Unquote. And chapter 7 is about that completed number. In fact, completion is an important theme of the chapter. We're going to look at it uh, through the following headings. Firstly, the place of the chapter in the context. Secondly, the 144,000. 
thirdly, the great multitude. Then we'll think, fourthly, a little bit about the great tribulation. And finally, uh, we'll look at the promised blessings for those Christians who do overcome. So firstly, how does the chapter fit into the flow of things here? Well, we'll do that by reorienting ourselves uh, where we've got to so far. The risen Jesus commands John to record everything he sees and hears in chapter one as Jesus shows him, quote, the things that you have seen, the things that are and those that are to take place after this, unquote. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gives instructions to the churches of the Messianic age. Those are the things that are. And then in uh, chapters 4 and 5, we get the antidote to the struggles of the churches as the power of God in his glory is revealed to us. And we see that he is sovereign and, and in control of history. And he has a plan of judgment and salvation for this last age of history all of it explicitly written down on a scroll, a book, the first of two books. The second book will be the book of life. Now come chapter 6, Jesus begins to execute this plan of God by opening the seals on the scroll one by one. Seals 1 to 5 unleash ongoing judgment for the sin of humanity to which Christians are not immune and cry out to God. Seal 6 is a response to this cry of theirs. And that response is actually what we call Judgment Day, which is a day to come. The final seal, seal 7, is opened only come chapter 8, when a climactic deep silence marks an end to the turmoil of humanity's rebellion against God. A silence to realise this time it really is done. And before that, however, we get this whole chapter, chapter 7, that breaks from the narrative of the scroll to provide us with respite from its terrors, describing as they do a depressingly normal day in human history. And it makes the break to tell us something hopeful and encouraging. And uh, the break is marked by the use of the phrase, after this, in verse 1. Now, the phrase itself is used seven times in the letter to signify a change of vision. The last time we saw it was back in chapter 4, verse 1, where the view and setting changed from earth to heaven to show what was happening there at the same time. And although the phrase after this suggests it, we're not talking about a chronological sequence. No, instead of that, we're, we're actually looking at concurrent events. So then, this new vision in chapter 7, verse 1, shows us yet another set of important events happening at the same time. We get it again almost immediately in verse 9. However, and confusingly, this second vision in chapter 7 gives us not so much a change of setting, but a contemporary view of the same thing that we're looking at in verses 1 to 8. As for a theme... This chapter is all about salvation in the context of judgment of God and the horrors of sin. Despite the all-consuming nature of these judgments, God is busy saving people and calling a remnant of faithful overcomers, those believers who hold on. And he's going to get every person he intends to, a completed number, to the safety of heaven.
So, even if our evangelistic efforts seem very ineffective, we're not to lose heart. God will get everyone. Now, furthermore, the chapter answers the question at the end of chapter 6, where the world finally wakes up to the reality of King Jesus on the throne. The believers shout out, Who can stand against the wrath of the Lamb, against death and judgment? Notice the contrast between their question, Who can stand, against the uh, question of the believers earlier on in the chapter, How long? Anyway, chapter 7 gives us the answer uh, to the question of the unbelievers who can stand. The 144,000 and the great multitude can stand. Well, let's turn to verses 1 to 8 and this mysterious number of the 144,000. What are we to make of it? Well, to help us, uh, we have first to look at, at some of the language John uses. He tells us in verse 1 first what he saw and then in verse 4 what he heard. A pattern which is repeated with what he sees starting in verse 9 and then what he hears from verse 14 onwards. Now these pairs of sensory markers of seeing and or hearing are always worth noting as we read the book of Revelation. One tends to be symbolic, whilst its partner is the reality. And uh, let's, so let's look at what John sees in verse 1, and it's this, God's judgments being held back until every single one of God's chosen people is sealed and their number securely written in the book of life, which we read about in chapter 20. And we're told about what blessings they'll receive in verses 14 to 17. In the meanwhile, the herd about 144,000 and the seen multitude represent an inner pairing. First the symbol, then the reality. The disciples were told by Jesus back in Matthew 24 verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And here in chapter 7 verses 1 to 3 we find the four winds. They're mentioned throughout the Bible as agents of God. And here, like the four horsemen, they're agents of judgment attacking the global environment in particular. But they get told in verse 3 to pause that activity. And that's for an express purpose. It's to allow all God's intended people to come to faith. God's always going to get his man or woman before he lets the four winds and the four horsemen bring their judgments and do their damage. Now, with judgment withheld to allow this salvation, John then hears the saved people in heaven described symbolically. And the oral description is of a very stylized 144,000. He's told they consist of 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, each consisting an equal 12,000 portion. Now, the eagle-eyed uh, amongst you, incidentally, will note it's a rather odd list of the 12 tribes because both Dan and Ephraim are omitted and are substituted. Now, let's be clear, this chapter does cause some confusion. There is an argument to be made that this 
number represents a remnant of saved ethnic Jews who sit alongside the great multitude of saved Gentiles that we read about later in the chapter. Now, if that's your view, that's perfectly okay. Personally, I'm more convinced by the alternative argument that both the 144,000 and the great multitude represent one and the same reality. They are simply a single group of God's entire new nation of people who honour Jesus. We must remember, you see, that stylized numbers are everywhere in Revelation and they are never to be taken literally. The overplayed mathematical symmetry of this particular description shouts out to me that it's all symbolic. And that tells us this herd description isn't the reality. John will get to that come verse 9. What is far more significant than the pictorial image of the 144,000 is that these people get a seal on their foreheads in verse 3. And to understand this seal, Paul uh, is very helpful when he tells, says to the Ephesians in chapter 1, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. So what about that question from chapter 6, uh, who can stand? Well, the answer is everyone with the seal of the Holy Spirit on their forehead, sealed prior to the judgment day. You see, God guarantees to take his people through whatever hardship comes our way in the judgments of chapter 6. As in the Egypt Passover in the final judgment, the angel of death will pass over as he sees the seal of the Holy Spirit on our foreheads and we will live. As you read through the book of Revelation, you find that everybody who ever lived is going to get a mark on their forehead. And it's either going to be the mark of Satan, which we read about in chapter 13, or the mark of the Holy Spirit here in chapter 7. And these marks authenticate, they secure, and they show ownership. They divide the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the chaff, if we can use those pictures from Jesus. Objectively, the seal of the Holy Spirit is, of course, a declaration by God saying, this person belongs to me. But it also helps us to know ourselves in our subjective experience that we have been declared right with him. We all have doubts from time to time, but doubt is not God's goal. He wants us instead to have conviction, to have joy and assurance. And chapter 7 is telling the Apostle Paul, and it's telling us, if you're in Christ, then you can be convicted, be joyful, be assured, because you have the seal of the Holy Spirit. Now let's come to verses uh, 9 to 17 and the great multitude. In verse 9 we get another after this phrase and a change of scene. John gets to see the reality of the 144,000 saved people that he's just been hearing about. And what he sees is not an easily counted number of people like that, but, quote, a great multitude that no one could number. Uh, 
unquote. This is what outnumbers the grains of the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky, the description foretold to Abraham. They're not just Jewish people, but they come from every nation and every language, and they're all clothed in the white of salvation's purity. They're all praising God, verse 9, this humble messianic king of Palm Sunday, now revealed as the Lord on the throne of heaven itself. What's being described is the fulfilment of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3, where it says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God's plan's always been for more than ethnic Israel. Now, in the final analysis, however you personally uh, think the 144,000 and the great multitude fit together, uh, the takeaway point of this chapter is this. They, com they show us the completed number of God's elect, the great nation of Abraham finally brought together. In the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, Jesus talks of this completed number by saying the banquet master, who is God, will not allow one single empty chair at his banquet. And that's an event which quite clearly is pre-shadowing the wedding feast of Jesus and his people, which we're going to find in Revelation chapter 19. Now, fourthly, the, the great tribulation, we said we'd think about that a little bit. Because verse 14 says that God's people are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, the word tribulation means suffering. It means persecution, hardships, afflictions, burdens, that type of thing. And it's very much situation normal in everyday life now. And the church isn't exempt from what everybody else suffers. In fact, we should probably even expect to get a little bit more of these things. After all, Jesus tells the apostles at the Last Supper, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's John chapter 16, verse 33. You see, there will be continued opposition to Christ and his people. But having said all that, Revelation is not just describing current events that are ongoing on planet Earth. It also undoubtedly teaches that there is a final climactic tribulation at the end of history, which will be the tribulation to end all others. And that's the Great Tribulation, which Seal 6 is all about. You see, on the one hand, Revelation is eschatological. That means it describes the return of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1, and the coming of final judgment on this old creation. History is heading towards the judgment throne of God. We can't get away from that. What for us is normal life will eventually give way to something very different. On the other hand, revelation is applicable to, to the now and to every generation. And it's this, it's saying, are you prepared for that day of judgment? Are you overcomers? Have you and have I got the necessary fight in us to stand firm, to hold on for the new creation? In verses 15 to 17, we see the kind of tribulations that this multitude of overcomers have endured in their lives. They're hungry, they're thirsty, the sun scorches them, they weep. But notice, they don't compromise, they don't curse God, 
but they hold fast. They prove to be more than conquerors through him who loved us, if I can quote Romans uh, chapter 8. That's why they wear these white robes of purity, why they hold the palm branches as a symbol of victory. The American preacher Kevin DeYoung points out that uh, these three verses show Christians that we need to fight and struggle to stand. Salvation is certain, and that's why we fight. That may sound counterintuitive, but just because you know you're going to win doesn't mean you give up the fight, but that you fight all the harder. The Christian life is not a holiday letting others serve you. It should be the other way round. Well, speaking of which, let's look lastly at the promised blessings here in these verses 15 to 17. And the first thing to say is it's not merited reward that we're seeing here. It's undeserved reward. And the reward is this. It's God's provision and God's presence. No more hunger, no thirst, no burning sun, no shivering cold. Instead, we get the shepherd of Psalm 23 who provides living water and tenderly wipes away all the tears from sensitive eyes. In a way, it's a fulfilment of Psalm 23. God's going to spread his tent over us, live with us and protect us and guide us for all eternity. The Lord is my shepherd, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, of tribulation. I will fear no evil. The day before this sermon was originally preached, I went to see a favourite band of mine, and they actually quote this verse from Psalm 23, but they change it, where it's even though I walk through the valley, I'm heading towards the light. And it's a lovely change to show the positivity of what's going on in that Psalm 23. Well, we leave our studies in Revelation for the time being. And those words of Psalm 23 summarise really, I think, what we've learned rather well. You know, don't be afraid as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Think of it as walking towards the light. Don't be your own shepherd. Let the Lord Jesus be your shepherd. Listen to him, trust him and obey him. And most of all, stick with him all the way. Then glory and victory will be yours. Amen.